Given the choice between a rubber inner tube and a cruise ship, no one is going to choose to try to ride out a severe storm on an inner tube. When the sea is rough, the only thing that stands between you and drowning is a good boat. Some boats are better handling rough waters than others. Coast Guard ships are some of the best for stormy oceans, for stormy seas. They are made to cut through storms and go rescue people in difficult waters. Those ships look at rough waters and they say, bring it on. Well, in the text for this morning, Peter is going to draw connections between a boat and faith, ironically enough. And if you've ever owned a boat, you may be familiar with the acronym BOAT, bust out another thousand, because maintaining a boat is very expensive. But Peter isn't concerned about the cost of boat ownership. He's using the analogy to help explain the role of faith while undergoing suffering. So because of that, let's rewrite that BOAT acronym to match the purpose. For this morning, BOAT means bring on all trials. So the scripture teaches us that faith in Christ will bring us through every trial. And in this text, Peter teaches us that because Christ reigns, you must seek shelter in him. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. A nice, straightforward passage. So we're going to look at three points this morning. And the first point is that because Christ reigns, you must know the purpose in Christ's suffering. Really, we're going to be looking at verse 18 first. In verse 18, it continues the previous thought from the verse last week, verse 17. And verse 17 reads that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And the purpose of the text for this morning is to build on that same idea. Because yes, believers are going to suffer for doing good at times. And God calls us to be zealous and to pursue good, to be zealous for pursuing good. But the problem is that the world doesn't like holiness and will at times persecute us for doing good. The world poses a real threat to us. In our society, we are a minority. Majority culture is against God and against his word. And in this nation, we're not normally at risk of dying for the truth. But we will be ostracized. We may be made fun of and we may be wrongly accused of evil. And looking forward, there's no reason to think that we will always continue to enjoy this freedom of worship that we have now. In the coming decades, it may well become physically dangerous to hold to what we believe. And when the threat becomes real, we may be tempted to give in to fear or to return evil for evil. But we must hold on to doing good and to seeking righteousness. And furthermore, we need to be encouraged and strengthened by the truths of the gospel. 
So Peter provides encouragement to us when he says that Christ also suffered. Your Lord, the one who is both fully man and fully God, also suffered. The eternal Son of God suffered at the hands of wicked men. So when a believer suffers persecution, he's not enduring anything new, extraordinary, or unique. In all suffering, Christ was there first as our model sufferer. And the Son of God did not humble himself and enter into his own creation in order to suffer for nothing. He suffered for a reason. God has a purpose in everything he ordains. So how then could the blood of the Messiah in any way fail to accomplish its intended purpose? It had to fulfill everything or Jesus would not be the Christ. His suffering and his death were fully efficacious, accomplishing the purpose of God in every way. And what we will see as we walk through this passage is that your suffering is modeled after Jesus' suffering. The purpose and the effects of your suffering may not be the exact same as our Lord's, but Peter assures you that it will accomplish God's will perfectly. But before we can examine the purpose of our suffering in more detail, Peter first explains the effects of Christ's suffering. Now, most of you know your theology well, and we're about to look at the doctrine of the atonement. But try not to skip past this portion of the text. Rather, approach it with new eyes as best you can. Because the beauty of the atonement is something that should always fill us with awe at the glory of God. The purpose of Jesus' death was for the redemption of his people. But there are endless avenues to look at in that truth. So Peter says that Jesus died once for sins. Now, in the Old Testament, sacrifices had to be made repeatedly for the sins of Israel. None of the offerings had power to truly remove sins. They really only pointed to the one true sacrifice to come. Jesus could offer himself, could only offer himself as a propitiation for sin. And Peter also tells us that it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ was perfectly righteous. That one man who was perfectly holy and unblemished by sin was the righteous one. And that one man offered himself in place of the many unrighteous. Because make no mistake, every human being to ever live starts out in the camp of the unrighteous. But Christ took the sin of the elect onto himself and he traded in his life for ours. He became our ransom, our propitiation, and our sacrifice. He became the only possible sacrifice for sin. And unlike those Old Testament offerings which had to be made again and again, Christ gave himself up only once. At one time in history, the Son of God died in order to redeem his elect. That one suffering, that one offering up of himself was fully effective to cover over the saints for all of time. As we said before, there was a purpose to Christ's suffering. Here Peter tells us that the reason the righteous Messiah suffered is so that he might bring you to God. Now the word bring carries the idea of access to God. In the Old Testament, the word is used many times for bringing the priests before the entrance of the tabernacle where God's presence sat above the ark. It is always used in the sense of coming before the holiness of God as his people. And really, it carries the same idea in the New Testament as well. 
Listen to Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the work of Christ has given you access to the throne of grace. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you into the presence of the Lord. Jesus' suffering also provides us with a hopeful model for suffering. Your suffering is not effective in the same way that Christ's was. You cannot die for your own sins, let alone somebody else's. But that doesn't mean that your suffering is ineffective. He uses our suffering for our good and his glory, even when we cannot understand how. Well, Peter then tells us another way in which we follow after Christ. He writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died in a physical body after walking on this physical earth. He gave over his body to be crucified as a propitiation for us. Now, there is a, a second, there is a debate over the second half of that phrase there, alive in the spirit. And the question is what Peter means that Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Now, how he was put to death in the flesh is a little more obvious, but how he was made alive in the spirit is not. And that could mean that Jesus was made alive by the Holy Spirit. Or it could mean that Jesus was made alive and then entered into the spiritual realm. And both are theologically true, and both fit the passage, but it's unclear which one Peter is exactly trying to say. And it is difficult to choose an option since both fit. However, I will say I lean towards the first option, that Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit, and that that's what Peter means. And I think that option, what we'll see is that it will fit better with the next point and what we're going to look at in verses 19 and 20. But regardless of which option you choose, the same result occurs. Jesus suffered to death, but was then raised bodily and then ascended into glory. Verse 22 adds that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. And so we can be encouraged that Christ is reigning, but we will wait to expand on that more in the third point. The encouragement right here, though, in verse 18 is that Jesus suffered in the body, but now sits safely in glory. And the same hope stands for you, because you may suffer in this life. You may be persecuted or even die for your faith, but you can do so knowing that just as Christ ascended into glory, so will you. You belong to the world to come, not this present fallen world. Should you be killed tomorrow for your faith, Jesus says to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the result of Christ's ascension after suffering is hope for you. So that's the first point. The second point is that because Christ reigns, you must obey the gospel. Now we're looking at verses 19 and 20. And now we arrive at one of the most contested passages, not only in the book of 1 Peter, but possibly in all of Scripture and the New Testament. And I'm going to tell you that scholars debate over almost every part of verses 19 through 20 because there are different views on what it means that Christ went, that he preached, who the spirits in prison are, who was disobedient, and to whom God showed patience. The only thing not debated is the part of verse 20 where it tells us that Noah built the ark and that he and seven others were saved from the flood. And everything else is up for debate, which makes it fun. 
Uh, so there are a lot of views we could walk through, but for the sake of time and your sanity, we're going to follow the traditional Reformed view, which is held by Augustine, John Piper, Mike Kruger, and some others. So while the details of what, are, what is going on in this text are under constant debate, the purpose and the larger message of the passage are not debated. This is the classic example of not missing the forest for the trees. The big picture will keep us grounded as we walk through these verses. And the big picture is looking to Christ for a model and an encouragement as we suffer for righteousness' sake. So Peter will use two examples in order to drive that main point home. The first point will be from the Old Testament, an example, and the second from New Testament practices. So we'll look at the Old Testament example in this point, and we'll look at the New Testament example in the final point. So verse 19 begins by Peter telling us that Jesus, in the spirit, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, some argue that Jesus descended into hell at his death, and that was when he did this proclaiming. But the word for went does not allow for this view. He didn't go down or descend, and hell is nowhere mentioned. Jesus went somewhere in the spirit to proclaim a message, but it wasn't to hell. Now, the vast majority of translations say Jesus proclaimed or preached to these spirits in prison. So what did Jesus preach or proclaim to these spirits? Well, the Greek word is caruso, and it's nearly always used in the New Testament for proclaiming the gospel. Think of it as another evangelism word. Jesus went and preached the gospel. So the question now is, who are the spirits in prison? Who is Jesus preaching to? Well, Peter tells us in verse 20 that they are those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, notice that Peter didn't say that after Jesus died, he then went and preached to Noah's contemporaries. He died and was raised up again by the Holy Spirit. And it was in that same spirit that he also preached through Noah. So Peter isn't saying that the preaching occurred after his death and resurrection. The connection here is that the preaching took place by the same spirit that also raised him from the dead. So Peter's telling us that Jesus preached through the Holy Spirit long before his incarnation, even back in Noah's day. And this is a remarkable proof that the Son of God has always been at work in creation. Okay, now we can talk about Noah. God told Noah to build an ark because of the flood of judgment was coming to destroy wicked man. And Noah obeyed and he started building. But it took Noah, as we read, a long time to build the ark. Noah had a good 120 years to build the ark, longer than the longest lifespans of today. Because of the wickedness of mankind, God had decreed those 120 years before judgment. And in that time, as the ark was being prepared, other things were taking place as well. Noah was acting as a witness to that generation. He suffered their jeers, their insults, and mockery for his righteousness. And in so doing, he acted as a preacher to that generation. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a, a herald of righteousness. So the Spirit spoke through the lives of Noah and his family to proclaim the gospel in a sinful world. God allowed for over a century for people to hear the call to repent and believe in God. The Lord was extremely patient, allowing evil to continue in order to give mankind plenty of time to repent. 
But despite that century of evangelism, only eight escaped the flood. Noah, his three sons, and their wives were the only ones to repent and believe. Now, doesn't that sound like a fun mission field to be called to? Noah and his family suffered as a tiny minority in an extremely evil world for 120 years and didn't gain a single convert. And yet, the Spirit preached through Noah and accomplished accomplished exactly what he intended. Because the Word of God, it never returns empty or void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent out. The same was true in Noah's day, and the same is true for the church now. God uses his word not only to save, but also to make men without excuse. When God gave time to the men in Noah's day to repent and believe, he was also showing them just how wicked their hearts were as they rejected his grace again and again. So don't ever think that because someone didn't believe the moment you shared the gospel with them means it was ineffective or that you somehow failed. God can use that seed in their heart later to call them, or he may be building a case against them for judgment. You were called to keep preaching and allow the Spirit to work as he wills. But you can also take great confidence that just as Noah was brought safely through the water, so you will be brought safely through the judgment. The ark acted as a safe haven to shelter them through a worldwide judgment on mankind. The ark acts as a sign of faith and as a picture of how faith operates. Because of the work of Christ, believing in him will allow you to pass through the judgment unharmed. Now, the sea, the ocean in the ancient world, it was a symbol of chaos and destruction. Water, even today, is something that man can't really control very well. And if mankind cannot tame the seas, how are they to tame God or his righteous judgment? On their sin. While the Lord promised with a rainbow that he would never again flood the earth, there is a final judgment of another type coming. And the only way to make it through that judgment will be through faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, you do not need to fear the coming judgment. In addition to that promise, we can also see from the example of Noah that we have hope as we suffer. Because we too are minorities in this culture, in nearly if not every nation today. Noah endured the scorn of the world every day, likely far worse than any of us do. And yet God preached through him. He suffered working on the ark, and yet he was vindicated by the Lord and delivered from the hands of evil men. He was pulled out away from them. His obedience to the Lord, despite the world's attacks, led to rescue and vindication. And the promise is the same for you. God will rescue and vindicate every single one of the saints. That brings us to the final point. Because Christ reigns, you must plead Christ. Looking at verses 21 and 22. So now we turn to the New Testament counterpart to Noah and the ark. And what we'll see is that it is very much parallel in meaning to the function and example of the Ark and Noah in verses 19 and 20. Now, in verse 21, Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And so, we must understand baptism in a way that corresponds to how we understood the example of Noah and the ark. Now, you may be shocked when Peter says that baptism saves you. 
How can the sacrament of baptism alone save anyone? The thief on the cross went to glory with Christ without being baptized. It cannot be necessary or so necessary to the point that you can't be saved without it. So what is Peter teaching? Is he teaching baptismal regeneration? Does baptism save you? Or does faith in Jesus save you? Well, we need to read and think very carefully as we walk through the scripture. We like things to be simple and uniform. This word means this, and it should always mean this all the time. But here's the issue. The same word can often be used in many different ways, and we do this all the time in our speech. And in Scripture, not every author in Scripture uses the same words in the same ways. And one author can sometimes use the same word in multiple ways, in the same letter. Baptism is one of those New Testament words where we have to understand the context of what is going on before assuming we understand what it means. So the question then is this, how is Peter using baptism here? While we're talking about baptism, we're not talking about the physical act of baptism itself. That's why Peter says that it is not as a removal of dirt from the body. He went out of his way to add that statement so no one assumed that he was teaching that physical baptism alone saves or regenerates. In this setting, the purpose of baptism is as a sign of faith in Jesus. It is a picture that points to a deeper inner spiritual reality of the believer. And it operates really in the same way that circumcision was meant to operate in the Old Testament. First, it was a mark of being part of the God's covenant people. But it was also intended to point to the inner heart reality of faith. And that's why God commanded Israel to circumcise their hearts. The heart is really is the reality which the sign really represents. Go back to the example of the ark. Was the ark a true physical object? Yes. And through it, Noah and his family were truly saved. But they were on the ark because of faith. Not because they were smart enough to build a boat while everybody else in their generation was not. The ark represented faith in Noah's heart. And baptism is to represent the spiritual reality of faith and salvation. Baptism is the great New Testament sign of the covenant people of God. It is what marks the children of God as members of the visible church. Believers and their children are marked as belonging to the church. Now, that does not mean that the inner reality is always true. But the gospel promise is always present and offered through the sign of baptism. In the PCA, we like to say, remember your baptism. And whether you actually remember the day of your baptism or not doesn't matter. What we mean is to remind yourself of the promises of the gospel and that those promises have been given to you to believe. Our duty then is to lay hold of those promises by faith. And in that way, as the salvation of Jesus Christ is applied to you, baptism saves you. And if you're confused by any of this, just swap out the words true faith for baptism, and that's the correct meaning in this text. Now, if you remember, this is a highly contested passage of Scripture. But almost no one argues differently from the point that I just explained to you. Pretty much everyone believes the same thing, that faith in Christ is what baptism is referring to here. And we see this more clearly when Peter says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the heart of baptism or the spiritual reality of baptism is faith in the work of Christ on your behalf. Baptism is the promise of the gospel to those who believe. Now, some versions say that it is an appeal, while others say pledge. And the problem with translating it pledge is that some then take it to be the believer who is the active party in every way. And that would actually make this the only place in Scripture where the weight and focus of salvation is placed on man rather than God. For that reason, appeal is really a much better translation. Baptism is an appeal to the blood of Jesus. It represents the fact that as we trust in Christ, we plead the righteousness of Jesus before the judge. A good conscience in this instance is a clean slate. Our record is pure and clean, not because of us, but because the punishment was already paid for by Christ. That's exactly what Hebrews 10 tells us when it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there you see both a clean conscience and a reference to baptism. Now, Peter adds to this by reminding us that our salvation was not just achieved through the death of Christ, but also through his resurrection and even ascension. In verse 22, Peter reminds us of the purpose of this text by explaining what Christ is now doing in his resurrected state. Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He is no longer physically walking on this earth, and as such, his time for suffering has long passed. He sits beyond the reach of evil men, and more than that, he is seated on the throne of power, ruling and reigning over all mankind as the true Lord of all. And Peter tells us that even the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. I must understand all three of those categories to be referring to the spiritual realm. Now, it could also refer to human powers. But regardless, the point still stands that nothing in all creation, physical or spiritual, falls outside of the lordship and rule of Jesus Christ. So why is that important for the context of this passage? Well, there are a few reasons. First, it means that any suffering we endure is under the sovereign hand and watchful eye. Of Jesus. Second, Jesus has fully conquered the spiritual and physical realms and subdued them before us. And third, just as Jesus suffered, died, and ascended into heaven, so we will imitate our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can look at suffering and we can say, bring on all trials, because no matter what happens, we can be assured that we will follow Jesus all the way to glory faith. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you suffered. We thank you that you were willing to come to earth for wretches such as us, that you would suffer and lay down your life as a ransom for our sin. That not only you would die, but that you would rise again and ascend into glory and that you would reign and rule for the good of your people. And by doing so, you open the gate for us to believe, but for us to also be raised again into glory with you. Lord, give us hope even as we suffer, for there's great hope and promise in the gospel. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.